John chapter 12 is where we'll find ourselves once again, two or three weeks in a row, setting a record of late. John chapter 12 is uh, the tail end of our Lord's earthly ministry. Some of you know once you get to chapter 13 and following, there's not much uh, red ink in public, red ink meaning words spoken by our Lord. 13 and through 16 have us in the so-called upper room discourse where our Lord addresses his closest friends, his disciples at that time. John 12 is finishing up the public ministry of Jesus while he was on the earth and then transitioning to that more private ministry and then, of course, his sufferings, his death, his resurrection. We have here in John 12 a fascinating kind of section. I have broken it down into three session sections, John 12, 37 through 50. If you have a red letter Bible, like I do, you'll notice that it's all black letters until you get down to verse 44. Verses 37 through 44a are all black letters. That means that John is writing this. Uh, saying this, and then you have the red letters from 44b all the way to the end of chapter 12, verse 50. So I have broken this section down as verses 37 through 41 as the apostles or John's assessment of widespread Jewish unbelief during our Lord's earthly ministry, especially in the presence of his miracles. Then last week, we looked at verses 42 and 43, and I called this the cowardly belief, in quotes, of some rulers. Notice, nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him. So something's wrong with that. Lest they should be put out of the synagogue... External pressure upon them caused them not to confess Jesus publicly. For internal uh, stuff was going on as well, internal motivation, for they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. The fear of man is a snare. They were snared in their conscience by the fear of man. By the way, never do that. Always do what's right, even though you might not feel like it. Don't let the fear of man snare you. So then we have, after this cowardly belief of some rulers, we have an overview of some of our Lord's claims during his earthly ministry in light of the cowardly belief of some rulers, okay? So the cowardly belief of some rulers, 42 and 43, and then 44 through 50, our Lord basically repeats some of the, many of the major themes of his teaching ministry, at least according to the Gospel of John, but it's in the context of the cowardly unbelief of the many rulers and in the context of the unbelief of the many of the regular people, the non-rulers, the regular citizens of Jerusalem and the surrounding cities. Let me read verses uh, 43 to 50 here. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him this is bad, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, public um, disgrace. For, or they did this because they loved the praise of men more than, than the praise of God. Then Jesus cried out and said, 
This is the section we're going to look at today, only verses 44 and 45. He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Very perplexing statement. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. If you've read John before, been here for the 120-something sermons, you can hear John 1 through 11 in some of these words, at least parts of it. Jesus isn't saying anything new. It's just a slightly different context, but he's saying the same thing. And verse 47, if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. For I did not come, first coming, to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. Very um, familiar words with those who are familiar with the Gospel of John and the other Gospels. Very mysterious words as well. Uh, He who believes in me Believes not in me, huh? Um, He who sees me sees him who sent me. What? It's not as if perplexing statements like this are first found in these verses, right? Jesus says some really odd things at first um, look in the Gospels, all four Gospels. Matter of fact, the odd things that Jesus claims, like I and the Father are one in John 10.30, caused this reaction among the religious leaders. The Jews picked up stones to stone him. Before Abraham was, I am, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. Why do you stone me? Uh, We stone you or we try to kill you. Uh, Because you being a man make yourself out to be God, calling God your own Father. So we have this kind of stuff going on here. He identifies the one who sent him, by the way, in verse 49, as the Father who sent me. That's pretty important because we have this language in verse 44. He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Who is him who sent me? The Father. Okay, keep that in mind. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. Who is him who sent me? The Father. But we have John 1.18. No one has seen God at any time. How can you see the Father? Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Some of you know, a couple chapters later, somebody's going to ask him, Lord, show us the Father. And then he's kind of been with you so long. Don't you know if you've seen me, You've seen the Father. What in the world does that mean? We'll have to figure it out here pretty soon. So what we have here 
is verses 44 to 50. They come right after John's assessment of many of the rulers of that day. Remember, they, they knew something about Jesus that was right, something at least. He was the Messiah as promised, but they didn't connect all the dots, and they didn't have real saving faith. They have historical faith. They had temporary faith. Some of them, by the way, could have been saved later. We're not told. But at that time, the reason why they didn't confess him publicly ultimately was because they were still in their unbelief. They didn't believe in Jesus of Nazareth as the savior of sin, sinners, as righteousness before God, as the grounds and basis for the forgiveness of all their sins and their righteous uh, approval in heaven. Um, they didn't get the whole picture. And because they didn't have true saving faith, they didn't confess him publicly and were told two reasons why. An external pressure upon them, the Pharisees would excommunicate him, so they'd get a social a disgrace upon their name if they confessed Jesus uh, publicly as they ought to have. But there was something else going on here. They loved the praises of men more than the praises of God. It wasn't just the pressure that the Pharisees were putting on them from the outside. It was also this internal thing that crippled their souls, the fear of man, that snaring fear of man rather than the fear or praise of God. So our Lord's words in verses 44 to 50, we'll pick up 44 and 45 today, address such mangled, half-baked, cowardly, historical faith, which is actually deadly to the soul. That's what he's addressing. Because we have here, right after verses 42 and 43, where we have this mangled, half-baked, cowardly, historical faith, which is deadly to the soul, then Jesus cried out and said, verses 44 and following. So that's what he's addressing uh, in the historical context, and he's addressing in the historical context uh, people that heard him teach. Now let's, we're going to look at verses 44 and 45, uh, and I want to look at verse 44a, the black letters first, and then 44b through 45. So note, first of all, how Jesus spoke. Okay, we know he said something, because if you have a red letter Bible, red letters come up. But the manner in which he said it is first indicated by these words. Then Jesus cried out. Okay? John says this of our Lord at least two other times, I think both in John chapter 7. But this public proclamation on behalf of heaven and this crying out motif isn't unique to our Lord. Matter of fact, Isaiah 58, 1 says, cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet. So this indicates that what our Lord says here is of life and death importance. It shows us that our Lord was an earnest preacher. He didn't make light of serious issues. Now, if I came here every week and preached and like this, he believes in me, he believes not in me, but in him who sent me. This is a great passage of scripture. It really stirs up my soul. It should stir yours up too. 
you'd go, well, kind of, you've like neutered your affections during preaching. This is something should, you know, grip the preacher, right? The truth. And then not in a fake way, okay? If I was all theatrical and all that stuff and I sounded like somebody other than me, then you'd go, no, that's fake. Don't do that. But if I was just monotoned and didn't get, you know, affected by that which I was proclaiming, I wouldn't be much like Jesus. He cried out. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. He cried out that. These are important words that he is, we are witnessing here. He having cried them out, you know. And that doesn't mean Jesus was up there weeping and true preaching means the guy's crying all the time. You've probably seen fake tears in a preacher before. But it means he took these as sober truths that you have to come to grips with in your own mind. You've got to understand what he means by these words. These are vital words of life. If you don't believe what he's saying, once we get to the red letters, you're in big trouble. That's why the crying out thing, I think, is prefaced. Now, let's note, secondly, what Jesus said. Verses 44 and 45. He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. So he says something about believing in him, and he says something about seeing him, right? Believing and seeing. He's basically saying believing is seeing, and seeing is believing, but I'll get to that in a moment. But note well, both believing and seeing, in these two verses, are also related to another person in the text, right? Him who sent me. That's pretty important. And who is him who sent me? We know the Father. So we're going to take a look at each one of these assertions, these declarations. The first one about believing in him. The second one about seeing him. I think they go together and are mutually interpretive. That is, each one is basically saying, making the same claim, using a different, different words. And I say this because in both statements about believing and seeing, what one does in reference to our Lord, believing in him, seeing him, one does with reference to the one who sent him, right? If you believe in Christ, if you believe in Jesus, his true identity, his true identity and work, if you understand who he is, you'll automatically believe in the one who sent him, the Father. If you've seen him, if you perceive who he really is, you can't do so apart from understanding that the Son is the Son of the divine and eternal Father. You see what's happening here? Jesus is saying, you better understand what the doctrine of the Trinity and the incarnation are, because without them, you don't have Christianity and you don't have Christ. I know those are big words, but we'll fill in the gaps as we look at these declarations. First of all, then, let us look at our Lord's declaration about believing in him. It's a perplexing uh, declaration. The, the simple declaration isn't. 
He who believes in me, full stop, okay. It's this second part of the verse that's perplexing. Believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Now, walk with me here at first glance. This seems to be a contradiction, doesn't it? He who believes in me believes not in me. Which is it? Uh, Can you hear Augustine? Pray tell, what does this mean, Lord? I think this is a similar uh, text to a text in 1 Samuel chapter 8. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to read it and turn there if you want. 1 Samuel 8, 4 through 7. Watch what's going on here. So we have the leader, the old man, Samuel, and then we've got younger ones. And Samuel's supposed to do something, and these guys don't want him to do it. And then God says something to Samuel about this. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us all like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me that I should not reign over them. Here's what Matthew Poole says. They have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, meaning not thee alone. Believe, believes not in me alone, but also in him who sent me. See what's going on there? Did they, did they reject Samuel? Yes. Did they reject the Lord? Yes, they rejected both. But the Lord doesn't say that. He says, they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me. That they have not rejected you alone, but they have also rejected me. To reject you, Samuel, is also to reject me. To believe in the Son is also to believe in the Father. To see the Son is also to see the Father, because you can't have a son without a father. And the natural Son of God has as his natural Father, God the Father, eternal. Notice the simple statement of this um, declaration about believing in him. He who believes in me. It seems clear enough, and I think it is. This belief is not that of the many rulers in the previous verses, right? They believed, but they didn't confess. They believed, so far so good, but they didn't confess. Not good. Why didn't they confess? External pressure. Pharisees would kick them out, uh, kick them out of the then church, synagogue. Why didn't they believe or confess? Second internal pressure. They, they love the praises of men rather than the praises of God. So when Jesus said, he who believes in me, he, he, says, he means this. He who has true and saving faith. He who understands, has information, assents to the truthfulness of the information, and then gives himself to the person of the information. It is that kind of belief that he's talking about. This belief is not like the many rulers in the previous verses. This must refer to true saving faith under the salvation of one's soul. So this type of belief includes knowledge or facts about our Lord's identity and work, who he is, what he's done, assenting to the truthfulness of those facts. Yep, amen. 
He is who he says he is. And in trusting oneself to Christ for everything needed for forgiveness of sins, righteousness before God, and eternal life, foul eye to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. But notice, secondly, not only the simple statement of the declaration about believing in him, he who believes in me, but there's a mystifying result. And here's what I mean by that. Believes not in me. This is the weird part. But in him who sent me. This is the tough part of the verse. True, saving belief in in the Jesus of the Bible involves more than stopping at him. You can't believe in the Jesus of the Bible properly, savingly, without believing something else in him who sent the Son. So I think it's best to read it something like this. Believes not in me, that is, alone, or as a mere man, or me according to my human nature alone. I think you have to read things in that. There's something missing there. There's what we call an, I almost called it an ellipsis. Ellipsis. Ellipsis is a rhetorical device where a statement is made, but it takes something out, and the reader is to understand by reading it and scratching their head going, it can't just mean exactly what it means because it's a contradiction. There's something missing here. That's why I says, that's why I said, believes not in me should be something like, that is, believes not in me alone, or believes not in me as a mere man, or me according to my human nature alone, but believes I am a mysterious person, God manifested in the flesh, God the Son, God the Word, become man for us and for our salvation, since he is Word or Son of the Eternal Father, then he is Eternal Son of the Eternal Father, having assumed a human nature, something like that. All of that teaching, by the way, is already replete in the Gospel of John. I'm not saying anything different here. True faith, then, in Jesus involves believing in the one who sent him, Now, who is that? Who is the one who sent him? We already read in the context, he calls him the Father. Listen to John 8, 16. For I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. John 8, 18 says, The Father who sent me bears witness of me. And John 8, 19 says, Then they said to him, Where is your Father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my Father. If you had known me, you'd have known my Father also. So abstracting the Son from the Father as the object of our faith doesn't work. You can't just take Jesus not in relation to the Father and say, I'm saved because he is the object of my faith. You have to have the right Jesus, and the right Jesus is the Son of God incarnate. And when you believe in the incarnation properly, you automatically believe in what the Christian church has called the doctrine of the Trinity. This is very similar to John 12, 44, this John 8 passage. Know the Son, and you know the Father. Know the Father, and you will know the Son. Believe in me, and you will believe in the Father. Believe in the Father, and you will believe in me. Something like that. 
Then there's these words from our Lord found in John 10. Listen to these. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father. The Father, even God. You know, sometimes you can read that. Now, certainly the Father refers to God the Father. and Certainly, if we contemplate this knowledge that God the Father has of God the Son, since God the Father is God indeed, then he must have omniscient, all-knowing information about the Son, right? If the Father is God and he knows the Son, then he knows everything there is to know about the Son. He hasn't ever learned it. He just knows it, right? Because God isn't a student. God doesn't learn. God doesn't add facts he previously didn't contemplate or know. So here's what it says. As the Father knows me divinely, even so I know the Father. What does that mean? I think it means divinely. So we have a divine Father and a divine Son. Jesus claims the same quality of knowledge for himself in relation to his knowledge of the Father. The Father knows the Son. The Son knows the Father. It's much more than uh, the Father knows some facts about the Son that have newly developed on the earth. And the son's Son has some, some facts about the Father that have new, newly developed according to his human intellect on the earth. I think it's much deeper than that. And hear these words. I and my Father are one. Remember that in John 10.30? It's good to ask the question, one what? One person? No, it seems to be two persons. I and the Father are one something, right? There's this unity of something between the Father and the Son that has to be true not only during the incarnate state, but before the incarnate state. The incarnation doesn't change these intra-Trinitarian, within the Trinity, relations. I and the Father are one, one substance, one divinity, and therefore one power. No one shall snatch them out of my hand or the Father's hand, the execution of divine power by the two persons, Father and Son, there in John 10. Another uh, very odd claim that gets our Lord into hot water with the Jews once again is this. Uh, It was that odd claim, I and the Father are one. The Father, here's another one, the Father is in me, and I in him. That's John 10, 38. The Father is in me, and I in him. Whatever that means, it seems to be some sort of, there's some sort of unity between Father and Son that can't be divided. Another very odd claim that gets our Lord into hot water with the Jews once again. Therefore, they sought again to seize him. That's John 10, 39. Right after he says, the Father is in me and I in the Father. 
Jesus in that passage is saying, think upon my works. Only God can do such works, but I am doing the works only God can do. So the works of the son are the father's works. Why so? Because the father is in me and I in the father. There is this unity of substance or nature that the Father and the Son share. We will add the Holy Spirit in John uh, 13 and following. That you cannot divide it so that when the Father works, it is the work of God. And God just is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So when, when Jesus does divine works, it's not divided from or separate from the operation of the Father, and we could say in the Spirit. So in this text, in John 10, he was saying, think upon my works, only God can do such works, but I am doing the works only God can do, so the works of the Son are the works of the Father, because the Father is in me and I in the Father. More various mysterious words from the lips of our Lord. Here's some more. The Father is in me and I in the Father. I remember preaching that passage in the Cobb's living room. And I said, there's a technical term in theology used to describe this, the Father is in me and I in the Father, but it's so weird of a term, I'm not going to share it. And I got a frown from Jess, I remember that. And I shared it later. I'm not going to share it now. If you want to know what it is, we can talk about it later. But this interpenetrating union between two persons, and we could say all three persons, in the Godhead. One is in the other. You can't separate them. You can distinguish the Father, the begetter, the Son, the begotten, not made, Nicene Creed, and the Holy Spirit, who proceeds from both. But you can't divide the essence. There's not three divinities There's one. So the Father and the Son mutually indwell one another. That's the mutual indwelling. Okay, I'll use the word perichoresis. There you go. You can look it up. The Father and the Son are so closely related that though they are distinct divine persons, when divinity acts, such as the miracles of our Lord, the divine persons are acting because they are of one substance or nature. Here's Matthew Poole. He claims... These words of our Lord teach us these three things. One, his oneness in nature and essence with the Father. Two, his personal distinction from the Father. Here are two mentioned, the Father and me. In our text, it's it's the Son and he who sent him, who happens to be the Father. And then third, the most perfect and intimate indwelling of one of the persons in the Holy Trinity in the other. Perichoresis, mutual indwelling. Now let's go back to John 12, 44. And take a breath. He who believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Of my many friends on the shelf that have helped me with this, I think Augustine's the most helpful. Here's what he says. But he that believeth on the Father must believe that he is the Father. And he that believeth on him as the Father must believe that he has a son. What is a divine father without a divine son? And in this way, he that believeth on the father must believe on the son. What's a father without a son? What's a son without a father? He goes on. He said, he that believeth on me believeth not on me. To show that the whole extent of our faith in Christ 
should not be limited to his manhood. He who believes in me believes not in me alone, or he who believes believes not in me as a mere man, as a mere mortal, just like everybody else, generated from an earthly father and earthly mother, He says this to show that the whole extent of our faith in Christ should not be limited by his manhood, so that, believing thus on the Father, he may believe that he has a son co-equal with himself and then attain to a true faith in me. So I could put it this way. The Son of God is such, Son of the Father, by nature, not by grace. Are we sons and daughters of God by nature or by grace? By grace. Is Jesus the Son of God by nature, by virtue of just his isness, or grace? Something was endowed upon him that was not his, somehow, some way, as a divine person. We would say, By nature. Did Jesus become the Son at the Incarnation? No. The Father sent the Son not to become Son. Son of man, he became. Son of God, he ever was and ever shall be. The Son of God is such by nature, not by grace. We get sonship by grace. To them, he gave the right to become sons or children of God, right? That is, those who believe in him. Our Lord is Son of God by nature. He is God the Son, the Word become flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. He indeed is the Son of God. At the end of John 1, John the Baptist calls Jesus the Son of God. The Son of God is the Word, who is God, who became flesh. He was Word and Son, who assumed a human nature. He didn't become word or son at the incarnation. He became what he was not, assuming a human nature, for us and for our salvation. Maybe a paraphrase will help. He who believes in me, that is, in my person, in who I am, believes not in me, that is, as man alone, but true belief in me involves believing that the Father has sent me such that believing in the Father is to believe in the Son. You want to have saving faith in Christ? You want to be saved from the wrath of God and your sins? You have to believe in the incarnation and the triune uh, uh, divinity of God. Triune divinity, that doesn't sound right. Scratch that from the record. In the three persons of the Godhead, that's better. So if that hasn't sufficiently confused you, let's get to the second declaration about seeing him. This should be shorter. Our Lord's declaration about seeing him. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. I told my wife on the way here. It would have helped me if it said, and he who sees me sees not me, but him who sent me. Because it would be an exact parallel, you know, with the previous verse. I think it still works, though. I think it's basically saying the same thing. So let's look at the simple assertion or statement and then the mystifying result, like the first one. And he who sees me and connects it with 
He who believes in me believes not in me, but the one who sent me. And he who sees me sees the one who sent me. So it's connected with the word and. I think it's another way of saying basically the same thing using a different words. Seeing here cannot refer to the physical eyes. You don't want to take it that way. Everyone who saw Jesus is saved because they saw him with his, their physical eyes. Any blind persons living in the first century cannot be saved. Why? They couldn't see Jesus with their physical eyes. So we don't want to say that everyone who saw Jesus with their physical eyes also saw the Father with their physical eyes. He who sees me sees him who sent me. Oh, it means physical eyes. I saw Jesus with my physical eyes, and I also saw the Father. That doesn't work with my physical eyes. No man has seen God at any time. He is immortal, invisible, God-only wise. Divinity doesn't take up space. It's not... uh, concrete created reality or even uncreated reality that can be seen with a naked physical eye. Something else is going on here. Divinity can't be seen, at least not with a human eye. Also, if this referred to physical eyes, it would mean that everyone who saw the Lord with their eyes while he was on the earth were saved. Any blind persons could not be saved, but John 9 has this wonderful report of Jesus healing a blind man that slowly but surely seems to connect the dots about the true identity and work of Jesus. A blind man was actually saved, but he couldn't at least initially see. He was made to see other blind people that weren't healed. Could they have been saved? I think they could have. They believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. But look at this mystifying result. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. You know, sometimes I wonder if the disciples, maybe privately, Lord, no can he do? Why do you say these things? A Scottish friend of mine used to say that. No can he do. Uh, Why do you say these things? It just doesn't sound right. He who sees me sees him who sent me. In other words, we could put it in paraphrase form. If you see me, you see the Father. You can't see the Son without seeing the Father. If you perceive who I am, I think this is what he's getting at, you also perceive who the Father is. You can't divide the two. Put one over here, one over there. And say, well, I don't know about that Father thing. I just believe in Jesus. Here's John Gill, who is my most helpful friend on this verse. Not with bodily eyes. Thank you, John. I think most Bible readers will go, I don't think he's talking about bodily eyes here. For there were many that saw Christ who never saw the Father. They saw Christ as a mere man. You being a man, make yourself out to be God. They didn't see the Son or the Father. They made him out to be a mere man. They saw nothing divine in him, nor the glory of the Father through him. We beheld his glory, glories of the only begotten. Uh Uh-oh, that's connecting the Son incarnate with the Father, somehow in this relation with the Father, I think also predating the incarnation itself, eternally begotten. We sing those words, we confess those words. But with the eyes of the understanding, Gill says, ah, that's it. Whoever saw or perceived 
the glory of Christ and his miracles saw the glory of God in them also, for the Father that dwells, dwelt in him did the works. And then Gill cites John 14.10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The works, the words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. He doesn't deny he was doing works. He's just saying, you got to wrestle with this. When the Son, according to his divinity, does a work, the Father, according to his divinity, is, is causing the same effects, is doing the same work. Does anybody know what that's called? It's too technical. I won't share it with you. It's not good for your soul. Sean doesn't like that. Inseparable operations. The external acts of God are inseparable from the three persons. That is, in every divine act, it is just God who acts. Gill goes on, and whoever truly sees Christ with an eye of faith sees his glory as the glory of the only begotten of the Father. That's Johannine language. That's in John's Gospel, chapter 1. Chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? Do you see the guy with a big afro from the 70s and Monday Night Football? He has, he has eternal begottenness. The son is begotten of the father. He has Nicene language. He has scriptural language. Uh, it's first scriptural language. And then it ends up in the, in the creeds and, and our confession as well. You do remember the guy. Remember he had the rainbow afro and he held up the sign. He had only begotten son language on the billboard that he was promoting during that. Whoever truly sees Christ with an eye of faith sees his glory as the glory of the only begotten of the Father, as the brightness of his Father's glory. What is Gil doing? It's going through the Bible. That's John, and then this is Hebrews. As having the fullness of the Godhead dwelling in him, Paul, the same perfections as the Father, so that he that hath seen the one hath seen the other also. I think he's talking about perceiving in the soul the true identity and relation between Father and Son. Here's the Apostle Paul talking about this inward seeing, this spiritual perception. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who hath shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Christ is the mediator. This saving knowledge comes to through him and by virtue of him, but it comes to us and that goes back to, we see the glory of God in the face of Christ. And then he says in another place, the eyes of your understanding having been enlightened. So what Jesus is talking about, seeing is this enlightenment that occurs in souls. Seeing the Son then for who he is necessarily includes seeing the Father as the Father of the Son who sent him. Casey Ryle says, he that sees me, sees not only me, but through me and by me. He sees him 
that sent me, for we cannot be divided. I think it's something like that that Jesus is getting at here. Who believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me, sees him who sent me. So we have, oh, we have time for contemplation. Isn't that marvelous? You know, I remember hearing people say, Pastor, hurry up with the exposition and get to the application. That's the good stuff. In my application or contemplation, I just say the same thing I already said, just in a slightly different way. But the first thing I want you to think about is this. We see here, in my exposition of these verses, the importance of a robust use of other texts in John and elsewhere to help explain the meaning of John 12, 44, and 45. See how important it was for me to go back from Jesus' words in John 12 to some other red letters in the Gospel of John to kind of fill in our, the cavity maybe in our brains that would help us, oh, when Jesus is saying this kind of stuff, it's not novel, it's not new. He said it before. And then I even went back on the first part of verse 44. We went all the way back to 1 Samuel chapter 8. They have not rejected you, but rejected me. They have not rejected only you. They rejected you, but more importantly, they have rejected me. He who has seen believes in me alone as an individual only man and not God become man. Um, believes, he truly believes, believes also in the him who sent me. So I used texts, I used Jesus' own words to help us with Jesus' own words. Wow, I'm a genius, aren't I? It's a good way to read the Bible, by the way. Read the Bible with the entire Bible as a litmus through which you read the Bible. Allow the entirety of the canon, rule of faith, the scripture, Genesis through Revelation, to help you understand Genesis through Revelation. Allow the Word of God to shine light on the Word of God so that you might better understand the Word of God. That's pretty simple. It's profound. And oh, by the way, it didn't come from me. I'm borrowing from all over the place. Um, you know, it's the old, like Augustine. Augustine and then... Uh, Somebody from the Reformation period, William Perkins, maybe uh, somebody else. If you read their literature on how to study the Bible, they're, they're speaking to ministers, okay? What should ministers do to understand the Bible the best? The first thing is learn the original languages. Ouch. Hebrew, Greek, Little Aramaic. Second thing is um, put as much as you can of Holy Scripture to memory, huh? If you can't do the entire Bible, then memorize Isaiah, the Psalms, the Gospel of John, Book of Romans, and Hebrews, you know, stuff like that. Read the, read the books in this order. Genesis, John, Romans, Hebrews, Isaiah, Psalms, stuff like that. I might be getting the order out. But you see what they're doing. They're saying there's some, there's some Mount Everests in the Bible that carry a lot of weight in terms of giving us a grid through which to interpret other sections that might be difficult. That's why 
when I was expounding, explaining this tough statement, he who believes in me believes not in me, but him who sent me. I identified the one who sent me as the Father. So we have the Father's the sender, the Son is the sent one, and he's talking about his incarnate state, but the Father-Son language in the Gospel of John is, has a rich theological depth to it that you have to bring with you to this verse to really understand what Jesus is getting at. You don't believe in the Jesus of the Bible unless you believe he is the eternal Son of God became, become man for us and for our salvation. You've got to believe in the real incarnation of, of God the Son. So I used 1 Samuel 8. I used John 8. I used John 10. I used 2 Corinthians 4. I used Ephesians 1. And all about the scene, the, eye, the, the, the eyes of your heart having been enlightened. Ephesians 1.18, I think it is. That might not be a, that might be a loose paraphrase, but you get it. So this language of seeing, which means perceiving with the intellect, is picked up by the Apostle Paul. And I've said this before. Sometimes, in order to fully understand the intent and full weight of Jesus' words, you need go read the uh, go go listen to the sermons in the Book of Acts, and then go read the epistles because. What Jesus proclaims on the earth is explained for us in various places of the rest of the New Testament by the apostles. And then you have the word of God on the word of God incarnate, which is pretty cool. Anyway, that's my hermeneutics contemplation. I have one more. And it is this. We see here the mystery of the Trinity revealed through the words of our Lord. Listen to Cyril of Alexandria. From the, he's from the 5th century. By the way, I love reading these old guys because if you read, like I have in the last several years, all the commentaries I read chronologically, I, never get, I rarely get to the 20th century. Why? Anything good's already been said. And you just, you see, especially this guy named uh, Thomas Aquinas, he just says, as Augustine says. And I'm going, I already read Augustine. You're not going to add anything and sometimes he does, sometimes he doesn't. Then you get to John Gill, and you go, John Gill, he's at 18th century. I know who you're reading, all the guys I was reading, because all the good stuff is said by all the giants of the Christian faith. Listen to Cyril. By the way, one of the ways, one of the reasons why I like Cyril, he'll be doing polemics, you know, arguing against somebody, and he'll, he'll say, our, our, uh, our adversary has said the stupidest thing any man has ever said in the history of saying things. And I'm reading that going, yeah, I like that guy. But listen to what he says here. He says, when you believe in me, I who am a human being like you for your sake, but also God on my own and because of the Father from whom I am, do not imagine that you are placing your faith in a human being. I am no less than God by nature, even if I look like you, since I am of the same substance, divinity, as my begetter, the Father, you, your faith will certainly transfer also to the Father himself. The Lord gradually taught, he says, the Lord gradually taught them something better and profitably interweaving the human with the divine. And he said, whoever believes in me. Now, 
He has very clearly informed us that faith should be directed not simply to a human being, to the, but to the nature of God, even though the word was in the flesh. Saving faith has to be ultimately depending upon God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Listen to the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, John language, John 1, John 3, begotten of the Father before all the worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, you've heard this language, begotten not made, some of our favorite Christmas hymns use this very language. Begotten, not made. Um, And the word became flesh. Was the flesh of the incarnate Son of God begotten eternally or made temporally? Made temporally. Because very God of very God, very man of very man, being of one substance, essence with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary and was made man, suffered, died under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, buried, uh, raised, ascended into heaven, reigned at the right hand of the Father and will come again. In Jesus' name, amen. But listen to this hymn, and we're going to sing not this hymn, but a hymn close to this hymn. Father of heaven, this is hymn number 88, if you want to turn there. We're going to sing 89 when I land this plane. Father of heaven, whose love profound, a ransom for our souls has found, have found. Before thy throne we sinners bend, to us thy pardoning love extend. Almighty Son, Ah, incarnate word who became man for us and for our salvation. Our prophet, priest, redeemer, Lord, before thy throne. Ooh, the Father has a throne in heaven. The Son has a throne in heaven. Before thy throne we sinners bend to us thy saving grace extend. Eternal spirit by whose breath the soul is raised from sin and death. 2 Corinthians 4, Ephesians 1, the eyes of your heart having been enlightened. The soul is raised from sin and death before thy throne. We sinners bend to us, thy quickening power extend. Jehovah, Father, Spirit, Son, mysterious Godhead, three in one. Before thy throne, we sinners bend. Grace Pardon, life to us, extend. Amen. So this revelation of the Trinity in the words of our Lord Jesus, that's what's behind it. It doesn't make sense without what we call the doctrine of the Trinity. You want me to read the next line here? Should fuel our praises, shouldn't it? Well, I can't comprehend the Trinity. You can't comprehend anything about God. You can apprehend some things about him, but you can't dig into the divine mysteries and solve them all. You can't know God as God knows God because you're not 
Duh. God. But you can know God insofar as he has revealed himself to us. And when you do, you want to praise him. You want to sing the Gloria Patri after hymn number 89, of which Sean will lead us in. If you truly believe in Jesus, you believe him to be the only begotten son, eternal son of the eternal father who both breathe out the Holy Spirit eternally. There's this intra-Trinitarian communion and yet union of the persons that doesn't get dissolved or tinkered with or mangled or messed with by the incarnation. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Flesh. He assumed our nature, duties, liabilities, and responsibilities. Why? To bring us to God. To bring us into the safe presence of God. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for your word and ask that anything that was not uh, scripturally based would be blown out of our memories and the rest of it would be cemented deeply riveted on our souls, on our minds, on our hearts, on our affections, and that that those truths would move us not only to praise you more, but to speak, to confess the Lord Jesus and these hard doctrines to others, friends and family members and neighbors, and uh, that others might come to these great mysteries, revealed mysteries of the faith, the Trinity and the Incarnation. Without the incarnate God, without the Word who was with God and who was God, and apart from whom nothing has come into being, has come into being, without Him becoming flesh, there is no salvation. But He became flesh. And we're here because of that. And we ask that you would cause others to see the Son and see the Father and believe in the Son and yet not believe in him, but at least alone, but believe in the one who sent him, the eternal son of the eternal father, whose eternal spirit we partake of. We thank you and pray your blessings on our singing and the closing of worship in Jesus' name. Amen.